I, I've just got a couple of questions, Dave. Um, you are going from a church that you planted, that you founded. It, it's, it's gone well. Um, before I met you, I knew about you um, through you know, people talking about, about you and your great ministry. You're leaving that in Canberra and you're going up to Darwin to plant a new church um, tell me, tell me what's going through your head as you're as you're only what a couple of weeks out, a couple of months out from that. What, what's going through your head? Yeah, we leave in less than three weeks, uh, and my final Sunday will be on the 18th in Canberra. Uh, I think we've been challenged over the last few years to see that there are many places where the church is not strong, uh, where there's a need for gospel ministry, where people are labouring and they're fatigued, they're isolated, and We've been moved to consider Darwin as an area that is in need, uh, feeling that we've been where we are for over 20 years, maybe under God, roughly kind of halfway, maybe a bit more through our kind of you know, energetic ministry life. And so if we're going to make a change, now would be a good time. And we think that we leave the church in good hands. And so we have the opportunity to do a new thing. Uh, two last questions. How are you, uh, you, you've got kids, they're going with you. Uh, how are they feeling? Yeah, we've got, we've got four kids. I've got uh, uh, three boys and a girl, and my oldest is married, so I've got a daughter-in-law. Uh, the older three will stay in Canberra. Okay. Uh, the two boys are still completing uni degrees. The younger two, 15 and 13, will move with us to Palmerston, where they'll go into year 8 and year 10. Uh, on the 5th of June this year, my 13-year-old said... Uh, Dad, I think we've got to make a decision about whether we're going or whether we're not going. We've been talking about it as a family since Easter, so let's vote. Uh, he said, I'm going. Uh, Grace said, yeah, OK. Looked at Fiona. Yep, let's do it. I went, OK. Uh, that was at six o'clock on Sunday afternoon. I went to church. Uh, I stood at the back of church. We were singing the, the, the first hymn, and I just fell apart. Bawling my eyes out. Couldn't believe what we just decided. But uh, six months later, we're nearly there. And, and last but not least, what, what can we be praying for? Um, pray for us as a family, I think, because over the last month we've been pretty stressed, uh, exhausted, I think, probably is the right word, and we've been a bit short with each other. Uh, I think Fiona and I, the kids with each other and us with them, just I think a lot of the, uh, the, the busyness and the stress combined with the grief, really, uh, anticipated grief, but we're starting to feel as, we, as we're saying goodbye, that we'll love each other, uh, that we'll pull together. And I think especially if you pray for each of our kids, that they will walk with the Lord, uh, because we're very conscious that we're taking our younger two out of a, a really vibrant youth ministry uh, to begin something where they may have no peers and no kind of Christian support at all. And that's... Uh, humanly speaking, that's a very scary prospect, uh, but we know that God doesn't need human structures. So. Yeah. Brother, can I pray for you? And then, then preach to us, brother. Let's pray. Father God, we are so excited at, at risks taking because of the gospel, and as Dave and his family is taking uh, a big risk, leaving an established church, a church that, that they love, a church that they are comfortable at, to go and plant a church in Darwin. We pray that you will bless them. Lord, we pray for, for the kids. 
We pray that for, for his youngest two, that as they are following you now, that they will continue to do so. Our teenage years are very, very hard, and we pray, uh, despite the maybe a lack of a peer group, a Christian peer group, lack of a, a great youth ministry, may they find solace in you, and may they find comfort in you. Lord, may Dave lead his family well under you. And Lord, I pray that a church gets established, a church that is strong in preaching the word in season and out of season for your glory. And may Darwin experience revival, revival that is is not about Dave or this church or whatever. It is about you and the gospel. May it be true revival and may we all glorify you through what you're going to do through Dave and this church in Darwin. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been asked to speak on why we need more churches, and I think it's a ridiculous question. Uh, I feel like I'm singing to the choir. You're not here to be persuaded of that. You're here because you're persuaded of that. Uh, 3% of Australians are in uh, Christian churches. It's obvious, isn't it? That's 97% of people who aren't. We want more of a good thing. We could look at the population growth that's taken place, the population shift from the country to the cities, uh, the failure of churches to keep up with those changes. We could explore down through denominations the uh, fear that they have of decline, of losing pastors, of losing churches. Uh, We could observe simply the church buildings that are no longer used for church, restaurants, Trendy homes, uh, buildings shut down, offices replacing them. Uh, In fact, my uncle told me one time that a church opposite his place had been turned into a funeral home and many more people went there now than uh, previously did. Um, It's a dumb question, isn't it, really? Why do we need more churches? It's obvious, but people ask it. Uh, They've asked it of us as we tell them that we're looking to go to Darwin to build, to plant, to begin a new church. Why do we need more churches, they say? And it's a real question. Uh, When we think about Darwin, we've done our research. There's around about 50 churches in Darwin, around about six to eight in Palmerston, to the south of Darwin, which is where we're headed. That's roughly 60 churches in a population of 120,000. Uh, That is, one church for every 2,000 people. If there's an average of 200 people in church, that means that 10% of Darwin is covered by church. But then, before we move on, let me just remind you how bizarre it would be to set a target of 10% and be content. If there was a raging fire through the city and the fire people were able to rescue 10% of those who'd been there, would they be satisfied? No, we'd be appalled at the 90% that perished. The average size, however, of churches up in Darwin is more like 30 than 200. That means 1.5% of the population, and those churches include Roman Catholic, Uniting Churches, Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, uh, Australian Christian Churches, C3 Churches, all kinds of independent and Pentecostal churches, churches with very strange names. And yet people say, why do we need another church? I've had Presbyterian friends say, but hey, we've got a Presbyterian church up there, like we've got it covered, 50 to 60 people going to that church. Well, that's one in 2,000 people. That's not 10%, that's 0.05%. 
That's a figure that you reserve for drink driving, not for planting churches. You see, I don't hear people say, why do we need another school in Darwin? We've got a school there. There's 50 or 60 kids in that school. Why? Because we want everyone in school. So, of course, you want more schools. See, it's a franchise mentality, isn't it? We've got our branch there. We've got our office. We've got our representatives. So we've got it covered, it seems. Shortly after we made the decision to move to Darwin, we sent letters to various people, to churches up there, to introduce ourselves, to let them know what's happening. And I received a letter from a denominational leader who said, basically, well, we've been working up here for 100 years. That no, was the Anglicans. We're doing a good work. We've got it covered. So please go somewhere where you're needed. We made a decision last year to plant a church in the south of Canberra, Central Evangelical Church. And as I spoke to people about this, they said things like, why don't you send people to churches that are already there that are struggling? Because they need help. Why don't you go to a place that exists rather than plant another in competition? And this idea of competition was really very strong. One denominational leader in Canberra said to me, I'll need to protect my people. Verbatim. I said, what do you mean? Well, well, my ministers, I'll need to protect them from what you're doing. From what? What do they need protection from? Friends, it's a serious question, isn't it? Why do we need more churches? People say, yes, 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 we need more churches. Of course we need to be planting churches. But then you plant one nearby. Ooh not in my backyard. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning there's a number of practical reasons why we should plant more churches and there's one big theological reason why we should plant more churches and I'll begin with the practical. I'm only going to come up with ten reasons, first of all. One, we're not reaching the population. I think it was Andrew said that uh, 65% of Australians don't know a Christian. Therefore, a good reason to be planting more churches. But we need to be careful, don't we? Because we could increase the number of churches and still not reach that 65%. And so it may not make an impact on the numbers of people who don't make a Christian. We could be shuffling the deck, changing things around. Number two, existing churches are really perceived as irrelevant, out of date, oppressive, self-righteous, and you can add your own adjectives. But again, we need to be careful because we're not simply dealing with perceptions or image. There's more that matters, and it's just as important for established churches to make an impact. And what's to say that new ones won't be just like that? Out of date, irrelevant, self-righteous, oppressive. Third reason, I've read it and heard it said, it's easier to give birth than to raise the dead. And people say it's more fun. I think it's only blokes who would say that. <laughs> if that's true, isn't it still a cop-out and an easy option? Does that mean that any church that's struggling, any church that has problems, any church with difficulties can be content to stay the way they are while we just replace them with alternatives? No. No, the word of God calls the church to change. It calls the church to grow into maturity. It's actually an attractive thing to transform a church. Mark Dever is a great advocate of what he calls the two-for-one strategy. 
And that is you find a church that's struggling, that's, that's dying, that's looking like it's uh, not got a future, and you revitalise it. And you get two for one. You get rid of a bad witness to the community and you replace it with a good one. So it doesn't necessarily mean that we need more churches. Fourth reason, tactical reason. Geographical reasons, geographical reach. We wanted to engage more people with our church in Canberra. People were travelling 20, 25 kilometres to come to us. We found that there were a cluster of, of around about 20 families living in that area of Canberra. And so we thought, well, why not take the church to them so that their neighbours will come to church with them? We've got friends who are involved in a church in Maitland, uh, in mid-New South Wales, uh, where people would drive from Singleton. I'm not sure how far that is away. I think it's something like 50, 60 kilometres. Am I right? Somebody know? It's a trip anyway. You've got to get in the car and go for a while. And they were travelling to church. So why not take a church to Singleton? And they planted the church there. And, of course, that's often the reason. We want more reach. We want beacons where people can access the gospel. We want places where they can bring their friends to hear the gospel. And it's not just geographical reach. Fifth reason I'd suggest is cultural reach. We planted a church on the university campus in Canberra and a major part of the reason for doing that was our observation that most of the churches around about were not reaching students. There were thousands and thousands of them in their geographical patch, but they weren't connecting. So we planted a church that would connect. And of course, this has been the reason for many ethnic and language-based churches. And we'd do well to look around about and see the different subcultures that we have in our own country to see which groups are not really being reached by the church. And that analysis would give us reasons for planting new churches. One group that I'm considering as we move uh, up to the north of Australia is the fly-in, fly-out mining community which seems to be uh, totally removed from the society around about them and quite dislocated because they go there to work, they live in these compounds and then they fly back home. How do you reach people like that? I don't know. Sixth reason, urban growth. We are expanding, cities especially. There are new estates going up and we've already heard of church plants here, Stuart going to Oran Park. There, beginning with a, a new housing area to be a part of it and grow with it. We have a, a massive area that's about to be opened uh, in the south of Canberra and so where we've put our church is less than two kilometres from where they are projecting 60,000 more people to live over the next few years. No church there yet. Great reason to plant new ones. Where we're planting in Palmerston, uh, in uh, the north of uh, Australia, you have Darwin, you have a kind of satellite city, suburb area, Palmerston below that. But the projections are that by 2020 they'll begin building Waddell, which may grow to be 60,000 people just to the south of Palmerston. Reasons there. There's no church there yet. So the size of the cities and the growth of new areas is a reason to be planting. Also, people have observed in the major cities that there is roughly the same number of churches that there were in this city or Sydney or Brisbane or Adelaide or wherever when these cities were half or a third of the size that they are now. So there's a great reason. Seven, of the many churches that are in existence, not many of them are evangelical. 
There are all kinds of agendas that dominate the church. It may be religious ritual, a kind of mysticism. It might be social justice. It may be that they're just kind of become middle-class clubs. And they're not really places where people are growing into maturity by the word of God and prayer. No, we need churches that are teaching the Bible, that are proclaiming Christ. But as I've said before, that means transforming existing churches as well as planting new ones. Eighth reason, as we plant churches, if we're wanting to make an impact for the gospel, then we need to look to plant church planting churches. See, addition is a slow way to grow. Multiplication is a faster move. And if you get a church that will plant a new church and they plant another and they plant another, then you get this kind of spread, a kind of fractal spread, in a way that, well, so often... A denomination picks an area and they go, yes, we'll add one. Ninth reason, if we build or if we plant more churches, it re-energises people to serve. Those who become part of the new thing are caught up in a vision to proclaim Christ, to encourage and to build, to get involved, to use their gifts. It it sharpens the vision, doesn't it? There's an energy and a vitality and an impact And those are words that we don't often hear in relationship to existing churches. It does energise. But again, that's not an excuse to leave churches the way they are. And of course, the flip side of that, and this is my tenth reason, is it's good for the sending churches to plant churches. The spirit of generosity, it's very costly to send off your best people to start something new. But it's good for that church to do it. It's good for their understanding of the gospel. It's good for their grace. It frees up spaces for others to serve. It it refocuses the vision of the mother church. Now, friends, we could brainstorm here, and and I'm sure that that some of you have read up on this, you've thought about this, you've analysed this, and, and you could help us to come up very quickly with another 10 reasons why we need more churches. Maybe we could stay here for longer and we could come up with a hundred reasons why we need more churches. But I don't want to do that. Because what I want to leave you with and, and what I want you to consider again is not fundamentally pragmatics or strategy or analysis. It's not to be fundamentally needs driven. Now there's a bigger reason, a deeper reason, a theological reason. That is it's part of the plans and the purposes of God. In fact, let me put this more strongly. The church is at the core of God's eternal purposes. To build God's church. It's at the heart of his design for humanity. Do you know that we were actually created to be in church? That is, to be truly human is to be in church. Now, you won't hear that uh, when you're studying anthropology at university. That to be truly human is to be part of the church. As Hugh Mackay and other social analysts talk about the nature of people and society and and, and human groups, they won't identify the church to be the purpose of humanity. You just won't hear it. And in fact, you won't even hear it in many churches, but you will hear it in the Bible. Because it's what the word of God teaches. And I want us to open the scriptures. And I'm going to begin by going to Ephesians chapter 5 because I've done five weddings in the last couple of months. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Let me read to you a few verses. 
Husbands, love your wives. I'm at verse 25. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband." Uh, This is a passage that uh, I've heard and I've preached on at many a wedding, but it runs far deeper than talking about husbands and wives. In fact, it's not primarily about human marriage. What we see there in verse 31 is a quote from Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Then we are told by Paul, this is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. My understanding of this is that if we want to come to grips with what's going on in Genesis chapter 2, when God creates humanity, male and female, and he makes them for marriage, what he is doing fundamentally from all eternity is making us for Christ making us to be gathered together to be one with Christ. That's at the core of God's design for marriage. We're made to belong to the church and as the church to belong to Christ. That is his design from all eternity. And so the core reality here is Christ and the church. Now I think Ephesians 1 makes this clear also. So in in Ephesians 1 we can read, say, from verse 22... And God placed all things under his feet, that is the Christ, and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You see, we have been made for union with Christ. That is, we have been made to be one with Christ, to be married to Christ as part of the church. Now, we see that at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. We also see it at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. So come with me to Revelation chapter 19. You know the chorus that takes place in in this scene in Revelation 19, picking it up at verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and the loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. You see, the the final ultimate reality is of the church united together, one with, married to Christ. To be one with him as the church, that is our purpose. That's why we're created. That's where we're headed. That is what is achieved for us by God. And indeed, that is there right at the very end. So you flip a page 
you get to Revelation chapter 2, you're almost at the end of the whole Bible. And in verse 17, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. There you see, it is not only the Spirit that is calling, it is the church, it is the bride. Come, come, come. You see, the Bible, and this has been a very quick overview of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is a book about marriage. Christ becoming one with the church. That's what we were made for. That's what we are created for. And that is what is achieved for us in the new creation. But we also see that this is anchored in history. That this is at the heart of the plans and purposes of God in what we call salvation history. So I want you to come with me back to Matthew's Gospel, to the centre of this in chapter 16. Chapter 16, we're reaching a climax in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, the big question, of course, right through Matthew, as in Mark and the other Gospels, is who is this man? Uh, and Jesus puts it on the table in uh, verse 13. When they came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But of course, he doesn't just want the uh, Gallup poll. He wants their answer. And so he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound on heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now what's going on here? There's a great climax. Who do they say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter steps up. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Tick, tick. Jesus says, blessed are you. You didn't work this out for yourself. God made this known to you. This was revealed by my Father in heaven. You've got it right. I am the Christ. This is it. All good. And then he says in verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter. Probably knew that. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What's going on there? I mean, why does he say that at that time? It seems bizarre, doesn't it? It seems like a change of topic. <clears throat> oh, yes, we've been talking about who I am. Now, let, let, me, let me talk about who you are and... And let's talk about something else altogether, building the church. Now, of course, we can get all tied in knots over verse 18. Um, who is the rock? What's Peter's role? The Roman Catholics have a field day. Forget all of that. I want to simplify this. What's going on? Jesus asks a question. Who am I? He gets an answer. You are the Christ. He replies, yes. And then he says, I will build my church. Is there a disconnect here or are they related? No, friends, they're fundamentally related. And this is a climax, not only in Matthew's Gospel, but this is a climax for history. This is a climax in, in big-picture Bible terms. I want to demonstrate this by going back to 2 Samuel 7. 
Flick back with me to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the exchange that takes place with the the prophet Nathan speaking the word of God to David. And I'll, I'll pick it up midway through verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So the promise is given here that David's son will be God's son, will be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king, God's appointed ruler. And what will he do? Well, he will build. He will build a house And, of course, there's a a, a double entendre going on here because we know that David's son, Solomon, built a house. That is, he built a temple. And we can read about that in, in the books that follow. But there's another house on view here. And it's not a house that can be built with bricks or stone or mortar or or wood or gold. No, this is another kind of house. This is the house of someone. This is the dynasty. This is the kingdom. This is people. And this house will go on forever. So you see what's happening here in 2 Samuel 7. The promise from the prophet from God to David is that the Christ who will come from the line of David will be the son of the living God and he will build a church. He will build the church. Not another temple, but people a kingdom, a spiritual temple, an ecclesia, a gathering, a church. See, to come back into Matthew 16, the logic here is very clear. Who are you? Who am I? We hear that Jesus is the Christ. Okay. What does the Christ come to do? He comes to build. He comes to build his church. This is what was promised a thousand years ago. In fact, this was God's plan from all eternity. So when asked the question, why do we need more churches? Here is the answer, I believe, of the Bible. Because we need to get with the program. And God's program is to build his church. We're not talking about structures. Not talking about organisations. Not talking about denominations buildings or campuses, we're talking about the church of God, union with Christ, people experiencing true humanity. Now, it can get done in lots of different ways, through denominations, through non-denominational strategies, through revitalising, through repotting, transplanting, through pioneer missionary, parachute jumps, Geneva assessments, all kinds of strategies, but there's one clear imperative Cooperate with God's agenda. Get on board with what God is doing. Jesus Christ is building his church. And in Matthew 16, we we read on and we discover just how costly this is. See, having warned people to 
to uh, his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ, we then read from that time on Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things in the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's the cost of building the church to God. And in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That is to oppose the building of the church. See, the church is incredibly precious. It's incredibly costly. It's incredibly valuable to God. It costs the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to build the church. And that is no small thing. To remind us of the way it's put in Ephesians chapter 5, the cost of building the church. We read this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. There is Christ's passion and it required his passion on the cross. I want to finish by reading these words that we hear from Acts. I think we've probably picked up on this already as we've uh, dipped into this book in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Paul is speaking to the um, Ephesian elders and he says to them in verse 28, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. There's the trust given to the elders to take care, to watch over, to protect the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. There is God entrusting his treasured possession to these elders. See, God is passionate about the church, and so should we be. We should be ashamed at the way that we put down the church so often. The church is his. It cost him the death of Jesus Christ. Dying for our sins, it is his treasured possession. Why do we need more churches? Well, it goes to the very heart of, of God's purposes for all eternity. Climaxing in him sending Jesus Christ to die upon the cross and be raised again. So that we can be united with Christ and share with Christ for all eternity. Why do we need more churches? Well, let me pose another couple of questions and finish with these instead. Why do we need more Christians? Why do we need more people submitting to God and putting their faith in Christ? Why do we need more people experiencing the joy of being united to Christ and to one another? Why do we need more people having their security bound up with Christ and eternally kept? 
Why do we need more people realising and discovering and enjoying their purpose for all eternity? Why? Let's pray. Our Father, please lift our eyes to your plans and purposes. Please forgive us for seeing things as part of our own program, our own agenda, our own commitment, our own investment, and remind us of your commitment and your investment, your passion and your purpose. Please point us to the cross again and again as we think about the church. And Lord, please protect us and keep us from from seeking to or planning to build anything for ourselves, anything for our tribe, anything for our group, but only to cooperate with what you are building for all eternity through Christ. And Lord, please use us as your instruments, as your servants, to proclaim this great message of Christ crucified. Please bring people to a saving faith Bring people to repentance, into submission to Christ as their saving Lord. Please build your church, we pray. Amen.